The Deep Place on creativity and spirituality. My name is Joy Prouty. And I'm Joel McCarrow. Welcome to our podcast. Here I am sitting with my wonderful friend, Anna Weir, Anna McGahn, uh, and I don't even know which one to call you these days. Um, I which alternate. one do you get called? No, I, I alternate between the two. Is I, it on a stage name now? We, one, I guess, McGahn would be because it's my professional name, but then I think I, I ha- I'm still coming to terms with the fact that I'm married. <laughs> <laughs> it's another discussion. Let's just say taking on your husband's name is another discussion. So I use both. Does that mean you have split personality as well? Is there an Anna McGahn personality and then an Anna Weir personality? No, they're integrated. Oh, that's I like to think they're integrated. (laughs) I like to think my life is integrated. (laughs) Anna McGahn, and I'm calling her Anna McGahn because I'm reading her professional bio right now. Anna McGahn is an Australian professional actor and playwright and screenwriter and book writer who works within the film, television and theatre industries. She's best known for her roles in the TV shows Underbelly, House Husbands, Anzac Girls, The Dr Blake Mysteries and the recent miniseries of Picnic at Hanging Rock. Uh, she was nominated for two Logies, won the Heath Ledger Scholarship Award and many, many other things. But more importantly than all that, she is simply a powerhouse of a woman and a creative and a mother and is doing incredible things in the world. So I'm sitting with Anna McGahn slash Weir in her place in Mount Evelyn in Melbourne, Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, we're sitting here with her gorgeous daughter looking up at us, uh, her gorgeous daughter named Mercy. How old is Mercy? She's 10 months. Mercy is 10 months and she's adorable. So she might be making coos and um, clucks and screams yes. throughout <laughs> yeah. this podcast and yeah. we're okay with that. Yeah. We're okay with being parents and artists at the same time. <sighs> <laughs> we can chat about that in this podcast. That'll right. be fun. So there's probably a bunch of people who don't know who you are. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are? Who is Anna McGahn slash Weir? Um, well, I'm an actor and I'm a writer. Uh, so I primarily work in film and TV here in Australia. Um, and I've been doing that professionally for the last eight years or so. And I also write plays and I write for TV and film and I write, I'm an author and I write um, creative nonfiction. Um and a little bit of poetry as well. Yeah. Um, and so I sort of split my time with both of those fields and now with parenting. And um, I'm just really passionate about story. Mm, wonderful. We got to do some stuff together as well. We did. A few years ago. So you're also a playwright um, as well as all of those other creative things. We did a thing called People of the Sun together. Mm-hmm. Uh, a wonderful little theatre show. That was fun. Yes. It was an immersive theatre piece where we incorporated spoken word poetry and devised theatre and a cast of 13 people in a completely blacked out room where the audience had to roam through with torches and discover all these different characters in this sort of dystopia Mm. um, about a place where the sun had never risen. 
Mm. It was so fun. It was such a risky thing for us to do. It was mm. a risky thing for you to take me on in terms of acting. I became a lead actor in this play that we he's wrote together. He's very persuasive. <laughs> and he's very good. But it was really, like, it was, I'd sent Joel a draft of mm. this this short story slash spoken word piece that I'd written for another thing and being like, maybe my friend Joel can have a look and edit it. And he came back and was like, I'll be performing this with you. <laughs> it wasn't like, <laughs> it wasn't like that. that at all. It was like, <laughs> what, how would you consider this? And so we did perform it together. And mm. then we just had this moment of like, let's, let's just enter this mm. um, fringe theater festival. And we haven't got a play. But we'll enter and then we'll make a play in and two it'll months. Be fine. And it'll be fine. Yeah. And it was. It actually was. We did um, three shows in Melbourne, which sold out, that were, um, you know, and shows of, you know, of an audience about up 100, 150. Mm-hmm. And then we toured it to Sydney and we mm. did it again. And mm. it, was, it was a really beautiful mix of bringing what is essentially a parable, a story that doesn't necessarily talk about God, but is about God mm. into um, into the public sphere, into mm. a creative sphere and mm. having people from so many different backgrounds come in and inter- and it was interactive as well. The audience mm. definitely felt like they were part of it and seeing people um, reflect on that and what it brought out in people. And it was the, for me, it was the most collaborative experience with mm. both another artist and with an audience. Yeah, absolutely. And I felt so um, privileged to be yeah. able to, invoke stuff in them yeah totally yeah I loved it the whole experience for me was a huge challenge um going from having never um having not performed um like obviously I'm a performance poet so I'm performing all the time but in terms of dialogue acting having not done that and character yeah I haven't done that since I was really since my creativity was squashed and and we've talked a little bit on this podcast about kind of our my own creative story and I'll ask you about yours in a second um but it was like a big expression for me uh, which which I want to thank you for for giving the trust of um holding that place for me kind of stepping back into something that had been squashed in me a long time ago and and the risk of choosing to step into this thing and character acting which is so intense I couldn't believe how actually intense it was it's like giving yourself as a performance poet is is extraordinary on stage Mm -hmm. you give so much of yourself and and kind of acting you often think from those who haven't been involved in acting like you look at people acting like well they're just acting like that's not going to cost, but it costs. It costs so much. That that kind of creative expression, it draws so much out of you. It's actually one of the reasons that I moved into performance poetry to a degree mm. because I was craving the catharsis that performance poetry gives you of when I give myself to this and they're my words as well, I am expressing something so innate and deep that mm. on the other side of that, for me, is breakthrough. But I find that with acting, when I'm saying somebody else's words, yeah. I'm playing somebody that is not me, Yeah, they, you never get that point, that, that breakthrough. You actually uh. have to sit in the tension. Uh. And you finish the play and you're still in the tension. You go home from the play, you're still in the tension. And then it's up to you to somehow break through that yourself. And it's in my opinion, why there are so many problems with the mental health and physical health of so many performers around the world is that we haven't been taught, even in our institutions and in our, um, even in the professional companies, how to come down, how to, how to finish something like that. Like the experience you're explaining of going, 
it's intense. It's costing me. I can yeah. feel it costing me every yeah. night. I don't know if I have the energy to do this again. I don't yeah. know if I have the energy to go home to my family. I don't know how to face the audience. What? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. Um, when people aren't taught to how to come down from that, they just numb themselves with wine. Yeah. Hey, baby Mercy. She's stuck. My baby's reversing into a washing basket. <laughs> I love this. You are right there. That's a washing basket. And you're snotty. <laughs> this is the reality podcast, listeners. <laughs> yeah. I'm wiping snot off my child who is resisting at all costs. <laughs> now she's got her maraca. Yes. Maracas? Maraca? Is maraca. it one maraca? One maraca. One There's maraca. another maraca. So there are maracas. <laughs> we might hear some, some improvised maraca. Solo. She's a percussion baby. Percussion baby. <laughs> so for you, how do you, as as an actor, how do you go, like, choose to go there in your, um, you've done a whole bunch of TV shows, a bunch of theatre, how do you choose to go there? And then how do you choose to get out of that if it's going so deep inside you? Well, I, before I decided to find a different way, I just let it consume me. So I would... Right. I would almost find this reprieve in becoming whichever character I was, like getting so lost in that world that I take on these attributes in a way and justify them. Um, And when you're playing a 16-year-old prostitute, that's problematic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, wow. You know? Yeah. And, you know, some of my earlier work was just, was what would you'd almost describe as, you know, very brave and very risky and yeah. very um, edgy. Yeah. But the cost just didn't, it did, like when it comes the out in the wash. cost to you emotionally? Is that what you mean? cost to me emotionally, just to right. my lifestyle. I didn't know yeah. how to come out of it. I didn't know how to come down. I just embodied it. Wow. And it's not right. It's actually not the way huh. to do it in my opinion because what happens there is that you – the, li- the lines blur between who am I and, and who am I playing. And yeah. if you don't like yourself and you don't like your own sense of character, then you are escaping into other people. You are going, oh, I just need another role. I need to be someone else because being oh. alone with who I am just mm. isn't enough. And I don't have anything to say and I'm not living a life I'm proud of. And so if I can play that person or that person or that person or that person and just lit- jump from one character to the next in a series um, throughout my life, mm. then that's a good life lived. And I think I was in that place. So when I was playing this character that was so bold and so sexy mm. and so interesting and so sociopathic, yeah, wow. um, it was it was all consuming. And then mm. I, I sort of came out of, this was quite a few years ago, this was like back in 2011. Mm. This is before I had any faith as well. And I came out of that... Um, to do a few other roles and started to notice that pattern and notice that I was just going on in this incredibly destructive cycle. And so it wasn't until a few years later that I decided to retrain. So I actually went, I went to Los Angeles with a scholarship that I'd been given and I trained in a different technique um, called the Stella Adler technique, which is more imaginative than it is, let's say method. And imaginative in the sense that you create all of it. Yeah. You make it up yeah. instead of drawing upon your own 
wounds to create the emotion in you and like, okay, I'm going to think of this time that my friend died in order to cry in this scene. I've been taught that way. But instead I moved to, I can create a world so evocative to me that plays off my entire emotional map so um, precisely that I know it will move me. And I think that's where I could merge the writing and the acting and start to go, yes, this can work for me. And then acting became a creative pursuit where it was a world that I created that I could enter and I could exit it again, just like when you're writing writing a story. Um, And so the coming down process has been different too in the sense that you know, it is tempting to want to come home from work and go, I'll just have a wine or I'll watch some Netflix and yeah. I just, I'll just stop thinking. Yeah. But I've learned to, I've got to, I've got to verbally process it. You know, I've got to, if I can't verbally process it with my husband, I've got to verbally process it with a friend, mm. um, exercise, mm. you know, getting enough sleep, mm. journaling those things as, I don't know, as mundane as they sound, uh, imperative mm. um, because otherwise you remain in this tight coil of what did I just embody and demonstrate today and usually yeah. when you're working in film and television it's high high drama it's stuff that you don't usually go through every day it's somebody's left you or somebody's dying or you're in some secret relationship but you know it's it's always extreme yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's never just yeah we hung out at home it'd be, bo- it'd be boring tv <laughs> yeah, wouldn't exactly. it we just hung out at home. yeah <laughs> So for you, it sounds like it became a both a healthier expression yeah. um, mode of acting, but also a more it also tapped more into the creative. Yes. Um, that imaginative space. Very much so. Which is really important for you as a writer too, as a um, script writer and yes. a theatre writer and playwright. What is what for you, what does that process look like for you, the writing process as a creative process? It depends what medium, because I I'm so passionate about a, a few mediums and yet the processes are completely different. Um, and so my most natural process, I guess, is a stream of consciousness that leads into very reflective, either narrative nonfiction or really sort of organic fiction writing where mm. I just feel like I download it and mm. I go, here we go. And I'll sit down in one go, mm. be it for four hours or, or um, a couple of days. And I'll, I'll just write it and Mm. it will then it will be on the page almost Mm. in its finished form and Mm. and there's a real it's almost tapping into that muse it's tapping into Mm. a wave that is very present for a very short amount of time yeah and i can sort of go yes and then it's done in contrast screenwriting is the complete opposite yeah and is a is almost a carving and a chipping and a labor and requires it's mathematical in a lot of ways the the, even the structure of it is so um, held back, mm. um, so minimal. You know, you my often my instinct, and this will come out a lot in my playwriting or my prose, is yeah. it's to go, I love um, really big thoughts. I love metaphors. I love yeah. playing with words. And I love yeah. um, like highly imaginative worlds. Not that that can't happen in screenwriting, mm. but it's sort of the opposite to poetry in the sense that you don't use words to make the poetry, you use silence. Hmm. And you use 
sort of structure and you use conflict and tension mm. to create what is visual poetry instead. You're writing yeah. for a visual medium instead of for people's imaginations. Yeah. And it took me a long time when I was studying screenwriting to get the hang of that. I kept yeah. wanting to be like, here is a three-page monologue that yeah. this character says and they're like, the perfect film has no dialogue in it. Like, you have to paint the picture. Yeah. And, yeah. and you've got to trust that a director can see what you've written and and if you you know and create that visually and if you don't want to die yeah. to your own words then yeah. you shouldn't be doing this and for a while i was yeah. like oh maybe screenwriting just isn't for me yeah. because i want to use my words so much i want to indulge so badly yeah and i actually fell more and more in love with it and just in the wow. the minimalism and the simplicity and realizing a perfect story story hinges on conflict and on the tension mm. until i could figure out how that worked, the anatomy mm. of story, instead <sighs> of just winging it, which yeah. I think I had a, a bit of a gift in that I could sense where conflict or tension or highs and lows and climaxes and all those things needed to be. But you've got to learn the rules mm. before you can break them. And I mm -hmm. wanted, it was really important for me to submit myself to that. And I'm still learning. Yeah. Um, and so that's one of my goals at the moment as I write. I've had little seasons where I've stopped writing, um, be it just by circumstance uh, or by choice because there are more important things to do. And it's like that test that they did where they didn't let cats sleep and just to see what happens. Yeah. And after three days, the cats died. Huh. And it's it's like that. I can't not do it. And, um, and I knew that's cliched in a little bit of a, in a way. And I don't want to sound too indulgent in that thing and be like, I'm made to write. But it's, um, as a solo practice, it is how I talk to God. It's how I talk to myself. It's how I process everything in my own family and my internal world. And if I don't do it, my mental health deteriorates. If I don't do it, my um, the jobs that I need to get done don't get done. There's something... Um, about meeting myself on that page, whether it be doing, you know, the, the artist's way, classic morning pages, which I'm terrible at really, um, or just writing story. I, I find that even just sitting down and writing a story that is not my own mm. um, frees me and helps me find myself. And I find it um, where, where, where everything else is falling apart, I can go back there mm. and it's... And I get a sense of self and purpose again and just mm. go, no, I'm, I'm okay. Sometimes we have to sit in our pain. Yeah, yeah. But sometimes it's a way for me to be in my pain yeah. that can help me rewrite the narrative yeah. and can yeah. help me. Oh, really? Really? Um, can help me gain new perspective and help me feel a sense of authorship over my own life again. Mm. Of going, I'm, I don't have control over my parenting, I don't have control over my marriage right now, I don't have control of my career, but I have control over what I put on this page and mm. I can dance with it and it feels like mm. that, it feels like dance. It feels like just going, okay, I can, just putting myself in the wind for a little while and entering back out and even if nobody reads it, there's a, there's a centering. Um, it's, it's such a gift. I'm, 
I've learned to be so grateful for it. Mm. Because if I believe the story that I'm going to get divorced, yeah. I'll live out that story. Mm. Uh, if I believe mm. the story that um, my daughter is going to be a delinquent <laughs> because I'm a terrible mother or, you know, or that yeah. she's, you know, for example, she almost died when she was born. Yeah. If I live out the story that um, she didn't deserve to live and that we were, oh, she also loves the microphone um then i will live my life in this state of guilt right like so part of the process of um going through the transition to motherhood and and her birth which was very early yeah and very traumatic very premature yeah was i i had to write and and yes it was writing the birth story and it's a very classic way for women to process traumatic birth yeah but it's more than that it was me going how do i frame this so that I can see where goodness was at play and how I can see that this was a beautiful thing Mm. and how can I reframe this, that I can see the things that I may not have seen in the moment um, that may have blinded me, that I can thank the people that I need to thank, that I can be angry at the things I need to be angry at and go and come to the end of the story and, and be at peace. And that's usually my process of getting to peace because before that, all I am sitting in is in the conflict and I haven't resolved it. Mm. And so if I can fra- if I can lay that out and go, this is the inciting incident and this is the terrible thing that happened. But mm. here was the force of good that came down wow. and here is how this was redeemed. And here we are now and things are going to be okay. Then there's this, there's this future that I can enter into. And I think particularly with my blog and with my nonfiction, like life writing, yeah. People know the rhythm now. Like they know like for me it's always a process. It's like a song. It's always a process of this terrible thing has happened, but this is how we move out of it. Yeah. And I'm I'm not ashamed of that. I'm like even though I can see that rhythm, I can see that pattern, I've lived in the place where you just stay in chaos and you go, Isn't yeah. chaos sexy and beautiful and edgy and cool? And I'm I'm disagree now. I'm just like, yeah, no, it, to me there's no point unless I can deliver to my reader and to myself this sense of this is beautiful and this is redemptive and this can be restored. I feel like the the key for me is being as honest as I can be and right. as gross and in pain and ugly as yeah. I can be in that because that that earns the payoff. That sorry, that earns the redemption, right? Yeah. Um that and I feel like I'm allowed to tell a love story or a story with a beautiful ending, right? If I've if I've honestly gone to the places that other people aren't willing to go. And if uh-huh. I can go that's my that's my service if people are going to engage with my writing and I have the the real privilege of having somebody read it, then I want them to be able instead of going, here I am like dealing with somebody's indulgent processing of going whoa my life is so hard or wow my life is so great um if i can be so so honest that they can read that and go thank god someone's saying it you'll thank god she went there Mm. um if i can lead myself out of that then it's a lifeline for them too if they want to do that and they want to go there Being a mum, 
and being an artist. Talk to us about it. Easy yeah. as, hey? Oh, like the, the easiest, simplest easiest thing. thing you've ever done in your life. Far out. Nobody tells you shit. Like, <laughs> they don't tell you anything. They just, yeah. they go, yay, you're pregnant. And I, don't get me wrong, I was so excited to be, I loved pregnancy. Yeah. And I knew I wanted to be a mother. There was no part of me that resisted that. I was so excited. Mm. And people will either be like, mm, yeah, it's so hard. Or like, oh, it's so beautiful. You know, the best time, it's the best years of your life. Have a great time. Nobody, like, Okay, I, I just, I think as well, in my industry, mothers just disappear. Right. And because they've chosen that Specifically course, acting kind of industry. Yes, yeah, sorry, yeah. in acting, yeah. in acting, because that's where I do a lot of my, that's where I earn a lot of my money. Yeah. Um, you know, in any other career, you, you, they, if they're not supposed to be able to discriminate against you. Right. But if you have a giant belly yeah, yeah. and you've put on a few kilos yeah. and you're about to be a full-time parent because you're going to have a tiny baby, yeah. no one's going to employ you. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't really realize how obsolete I could suddenly become. And not only that, how then the minute that I'd had her, how hey, okay, the sacred space okay. of being a brand new mother could just be completely ignored. Like it was... Hello. Yes, we're talking about mothering. Um, I remember after I... So when I first fell pregnant, I didn't get a single audition from the moment that I... The moment that I told my agents that I was pregnant yeah. um, until the moment I gave birth. Wow. And then a week after I gave birth. And I gave birth, as we said, prematurely by cesarean section. Yeah. Um, and my baby was in hospital for a month. Wow. They were like, oh, here are some auditions. And off you go. So wow. I went, you know, I'd just been cut in half. I was still drugged up to the nines. Wow. And I went to this audition. Like, and they all sort of looked at me with this strange look on their faces. And were like, did you just have a baby? And I was sort of delirious. Like, yes, <laughs> yes, I did. And it wasn't that the expectation was that I suddenly was back at, could be back at work, but there's, yeah. there are no rules in this. People don't understand how to negotiate it. Some mm. women do want to just go, okay, I want to be straight back into work four weeks after I've given birth. Mm. But I, I felt like I'd tried to make all these decisions before I gave birth about how motherhood would be for me. Yeah. And you can't do that. Yeah. And um, yeah. there's a lot of shame and a lot of confusion about... Yeah trying to parent yeah. and trying to work and yeah. trying to balance both simultaneously. Yeah. And um, I suddenly felt as though, and, and I don't know whether it's right or wrong to put it like this, but motherhood was so much more um, in-depth and confronting than I had ever expected. Mm. And I felt like I had suddenly become a full-time carer, yeah. which I had. Yeah. But I was also expected to suddenly be 200% of the performer that I was before. Yeah. And I'd taken on this full-time job as a full-time carer to someone that I didn't even know yet, who I didn't even know how to meet her needs. Yeah. And my body was the thing meeting her needs. Yeah. But then as a performer, my body is my instrument and my tool. Yeah. My body is what needs to be on screen and looking sexy. My body yeah. is the thing that needs to be making sound and making shapes and being fit and being strong. And it's... 
it's been so painful and vulnerable re-entering the industry and I it wasn't I didn't expect that at all as a writer it happened it took me a while to get my brain back to be honest it was baffling I was like this doesn't work does, does do people just not understand mm. what I've gone through and I had to realize that no they they didn't understand and the only people that did were mothers yeah well, um yeah. and so I did a job actually a few months ago I, I shot a TV show and Thank goodness it was a shorter job. I'd convinced myself I could be back at full-time work by the time she was eight months and I didn't, thank God, I didn't get any roles that I went for in that Mm. space. But this was like like an episode Mm. Um, and it was all night shoots, so it was a bit wild, Mm. but the women got it and they Mm. they were like, yes, you have a kid. You can bring that kid to work. You can breastfeed on set. You know, your husband and your child can be on set and... I'd I'd spent so long berating myself for not having weaned her sooner or not mm. having been created a more independent baby mm. that meant that I could go be the professional I needed to be and it seemed that every other professional woman had done that mm. and made sure their babies were sleeping through the night and made sure their mm. babies you know didn't need them so that they could go be these amazing professionals and my baby did need me and my baby yeah. still breastfeeds all night and won't take a bottle yeah and it's to those that don't have kids, this sounds really mundane, but it's it's pivotal. This is it's the beginnings of attachments that your child will have for the rest of their lives. It's so primal, it's so intense. This bond that you have with this being that you've created, the responsibility you have to parent them with creativity and love and innovation and joy, and then the expectation that you can have all this stuff left over to pour out is so profound yeah. and so overwhelming. Yeah. And um, uh, yeah, I, I use all these words to make the very simple point that I found it so hard, so hard. You have to realize that you you, ha- you can't hold your worth in that anymore. Like I yeah. was thinking, oh, maybe my professionalism will make me a good mother. And I had to come back to the, the deep basics of presence, Yeah. of Creativity is a lifestyle rather than having an outcome and realizing creative play with my child, creative presence with my child, being free around my child, being in nature with my child is creative practice. And that's, I had to go back to that instead of a, I'm going to write you lots of storybooks and that will be good parenting. (laughs) Not like, I know it sounds ridiculous that that would be, but because I had no framework for it, I was like, well... We'll see. And, and I had to realize too that it didn't come to me that naturally because I'd, I'd lived the last few years very distracted, mm. you know. I used creativity as a real out, but if I didn't want to be in another space, I'd like hide behind my phone. It became, and, and in turn, the very act of going, okay, I'm going to be in nature with my kid, mm. changed my creativity too and, and helped me reconnect and get mm. go a bit deeper. I think as well and go mm. right oh there's a whole lot of stuff that I that I've neglected or haven't tapped into in the last couple of years because I've been focused on professionalism or, or opportunities and going oh there's also the creativity for creativity's sake wow. and that's holy and good yeah and I, and I want that yeah so it kind of took you back to the heart of your creativity yeah that's what it sounds like yeah which for all of us like the movement out of creativity as creative artistic expression that is leading to something especially those who are in the career of creativity 
how much do we need to go back to that place where create it's it's creativity as a lifestyle creativity yes. as what um what makes our heart beat when we get to go out in to nature like you say yeah. just play with your kid that's yeah. such a beautiful thing to go back into So I teach creativity and spirituality at Whitley College in Melbourne, who's actually our sponsors for this season of the Deep Place podcast. And uh, Anna Magan, who we're listening to, she's one of the uh, lecturers that I get to come in uh, to teach uh, from her story and from all that she does around creativity and drama. So um, if you're interested, the new creativity and spirituality unit will be starting next year. Uh, but please check out uh, Whitley College at whitley.edu.au. You have been writing this year. You have a book coming out sometime in 2019, hopefully. Yes, September. September 2019. If all goes to plan. If all goes to plan, that's right. Um, tell us about that book. What are you writing about? What's What has been stirring in your soul to write about? Well, it's, it's my story, so it's non-fiction. And... Essentially, it's the story of my faith. Um, I got converted, and I and I don't say that in a converted to Christianity. Christianity, mm. and it was it was radical, and it was also so deeply unexpected. Not just by me, but but I but by the industry around me, by the people around me, and. The reason I decided to write about it is because I, I wanted to express the complexity and the depth and the, I think the fragile beauty of what it was because mm. I think so often we look at people who have had faith conversion experiences and we diminish them. We just go, oh, that person didn't like some of the choices they made and wanted a quick out. Mm. Or that or person brainwashed got brainwashed or, yeah. or that person. And... It's not intended to persuade. Mm. It's it's an exploration and it's it's quite poetic and it's literary yeah. in the sense that it's an it's a personal exploration of um the female body. Uh right. And what happens when the female body is exposed to the person of God. Wow. And and because the transformations I experienced were so profound and very complex and so I sort of take my reader through these incarnations um, the body is a marketplace um, the body is a temple the body is a broken jar of clay and the body yeah. is a bride wow. and through this journey of of, um, of complexity and redemption again mm. what we were talking about before mm. and so it was a very difficult book to write because there were some areas I didn't want to go mm. but felt very strongly that in order to tell the story with honesty and transparency and mm. it, it's necessary because otherwise it's um, propaganda otherwise yeah. it's yeah. just a tool to go I believe in this ideology that I know is right and you should believe in it too yeah, but yeah. unless I can really show warts and all not only um that before I met God, it was broken. And then after I met God, it was amazing. It was more, after I met God, it was broken too. Yeah. And the church was broken and I was still broken. Yeah. And 
sometimes I felt God was broken. Yeah. And then yeah. to come out at the end of that and <clears throat> have these cycles. And it's not intended as an autobiography. It's not the whole story, but it's it's part of the story. Mm. And, and um, I, it was just something I felt so deeply I wanted to tell. Mm. And felt like it was... It was time to tell. And there have been other times where I've tried to write it and gone, you know what, this is not it. Um, but it came, it, it, I started writing it and then I felt pregnant very unexpectedly. Yeah. Um, unexpectedly. And, oh, yes. And then I stopped for a little while and then sort of finished the book through the pregnancy. And it was mm. this beautiful embodiment, I guess. Yeah. Of going, wow! This is this is. I know this is right because I'm coming into this new season, and the book wow. must end with this and with this experience. The experience of pregnancy is so holy; it's so theological mm. that like it, it can't help but like invoke all this reflection and thought in you as well. Um, wow. And so, uh, yeah, I just booked a, I booked a little um, writing studio for myself, and over sort of this six month period, and just took myself there mm. every day. And, Pulled it out of myself. Mm. <laughs> like created like a, a baby. Whole, yeah, yeah. Seriously, yeah. it was this long labor and just sort of every day. Uh. I made this little writing shrine in there and lit a candle and had this like just, you know, those writing safe spaces where yeah. you just create it for yourself and go, okay, yeah. I'll meet myself here. I'll yeah. meet myself here again. I've written nothing today, but tomorrow I'll meet myself there again. Yeah. <laughs> and it got out. <laughs> That's so good. I love, fascinating as well, your link between your spiritual journey, essentially, and physicality, femininity, mm. like mm-hmm. the female body. Most people wouldn't write a book and instantly go, spiritual journey and feminine body. Let's let's bring these two together. Tell me about that. Like, tell me a bit more about that. What is that? It's, I mean, as you know, as many people listening may know, there's been there's a war between Christianity and the female body, huh. and I hadn't necessarily experienced that because I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't come from that place of frustrated oppression, I guess, or ha- yeah. feeling as though that there were rules already over my body. In fact, I existed outside of those, yeah. and yet I experienced a deep divorce from my body, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and in, through many things, I had an eating disorder that almost destroyed me. Yeah. And I was bisexual and I was trying to figure out how to be in relationships with men, how to be in relationships with women, yeah. how to ex- understand my own sexuality when I hated my body so much. Yeah. And I hated it. I, I hated it. And I didn't understand my own femininity and I didn't understand how I could ever feel healthy in something that I loathed yeah, and, um, and couldn't be in. I just couldn't sit in it. And part of my spiritual journey was this strange and lovely reconciliation that even though according to um, a lot of people, God does not... Um, God is not for my body or God doesn't understand my body. My experience was really different in that. I just felt like I was invited back to myself and I felt like in a very, you know, non-religious way was 
was introduced to my body as a sister again and wow. told this is this is how you must befriend befriend her yeah. and this is how you need to come back together as one and understand each other and what it did was heal me on all these different levels and it, wow. it created chaos as well because yeah. if you suddenly if you're in the LGBT LGBT community publicly you know, are on television as an actor yeah. and are known for your self-destructive, other people destructive and, you know, very hedonistic behavior. And you just suddenly decide yeah. to become celibate or you suddenly experience a profound healing. If you suddenly stop taking drugs, which I did as well. Um, and so, like all of those things are so controversial. Huh. So people were so upset yeah and i guess what i had to walk out was how do i make this choice for myself how do i make this choice and step into a healing how do i step towards something like the church or people within the church to then suddenly see them be broken full of sin full yeah. of betrayal full of you know all of that full of lies yeah. and then go is god still there is my body still here wow can i be within it can I love in it? Mm. Can I bear a child in it? Do mm. I have fertility at all? Like dealing with all of those things that are, I guess, unique to femininity and to being a woman in that. Yeah. Um, everyone's sexuality is complex, but I especially think for women, so many lies have been told about it. Yeah. They yeah. are, there's such a passivity around it, learning how to own it and learning how to utilize it or how to surrender to it is um, imperative. We would have a lot of female listeners to this. Mm. Um, what do you like what do you want to say to them because I know um, of course we know that many of them will be like exactly the same feelings yeah. of I hate my body I, I loathe this thing um, yeah. because of this because I've been pregnant and it now looks like this yeah. because of all the because of the media and what media says it's meant to look like and what is what do you say to those women okay what I would say and this is what I felt like my body and I have learned together mm. is that we are we are equals and she is not my slave. Wow. And if I practice if I take on a practice of domination and of uh, control and bullying and aggravation and sedation and starvation mm. and I do that to another woman I do that to an innocent somebody that has only ever been there for me somebody mm. who's only ever wanted me to thrive someone who's only ever carried me and I guess a metaphor that came to me over some time was almost seeing her as an animal like I remember when I had an eating disorder I 
was so intent on losing weight that I, I remember it was raining one day and I took the dog, our family dog, for a run and the dog didn't want to run, mm. but I needed to, so I ran and I ran and I ran. The dog mm. was exhausted, the dog could hardly breathe. Mm. And I was like, you have to keep running. Mm. And I came back home and my mother just stopped me and was like, I don't care what you do to you, but you cannot do that to an animal. Wow. And my mother did care what I did to me, but yeah, yeah. the point she was yeah. trying to make was... You, you think you're only doing this to yourself. And I think when we do these things to our bodies, we think that we're just doing it to our soul. We think, it's me, it's mine, I deserve it, so mm. it doesn't matter. But our body actually has a sensitivity that's completely separate to us. And it has rights. And it mm. has belonging that is separate to us. Mm. And if we think we're just doing it to our souls... A, our souls don't deserve that, but B, it's, mm. it's not true. And when we have that distance between our hearts and our bodies, I think is where things just start to spiral and deteriorate. And what I want to encourage you, if you are walking this out, to do is just to look at your body and hold your body. And I had to do this. It's just holding. It's just holding it and saying, I, I want to know you and I'm sorry. And then listening, just a process of listening and just saying, I, what do you need? Mm. Like, whatever it is you need, I'll give it to you. Mm. And that's where we'll start. Mm. And the body might say, and the body talks, and mm. the body might say, I, want, I, I just want a hug or I, I want a cup of tea or I want a gentle walk or I, I want to run or I want some lettuce or I want some chocolate. Mm. But as you listen and you respond, a trust is regained and a relationship is restored and mm. reconciled. And now I feel like having never had that relationship and now having it very similar to never having a relationship with God and now having it, it is one of the most precious, precious, precious things. And I, I couldn't go through it without it. And I, it's just so important that we recognize that we are hurting and killing ourselves mm. in the process of of believing the lie that our bodies aren't good enough. Yeah. So linked, linked to all this as well is, is feminine body and the yeah. feminine and femininity and how that's seen in our world and being uh someone who is within that industry yeah. like that's gone through quite a shake-up uh in the industry and i know you've been part of that too yeah um not just in in the u.s and in australia um through the me too movement yeah um massive massive repercussions within the creative industries within yeah. especially within tv and movie industries of actors being called out of all that kind of stuff yeah. Um, how's that been for you? It's, in some ways it's been thrilling because we've been quiet for so long, you know, mm. and it's been this experience of feeling like everybody else owns your body except for you and then all of a sudden this exhilaration of, no, <laughs> no, and I say no. Yeah. Um, and then at the same time, I think there's a there's a guilt and a fear and a shame of like, yeah. oh, can I say no? Yeah. Can we even can we even 
do this? Is this even real? When's the backlash going to happen? When are we mm. all going to wake up? And then at the same time, like so much triggering and intensity around these conversations because the reality is that it isn't just, you know, a universal revelation. Yeah. People, some people don't yeah, yeah. get it. Yeah. They just don't get it. And yeah, so yeah. for those that um don't know, but I, I early on in the Me Too movement here, I had a journalist contact me and I told them without mentioning names like about one minor. I've had major experiences in yeah, this, but yeah. I explained thinking it would be part of like one small article, one minor experience I yeah. had on set of being harassed and um it was front page of our national paper wow. and it was sort of suddenly everywhere. Yeah. And then not long after that, I had people that I, colleagues of mine that I actually hadn't had experiences of this with get publicly um, outed and charged and condemned for their wow. um, behavior. I had journalists turning up on my front door. Wow. Um, you know, constantly get you like, it, and there was a furor because there was a media furor. Yeah. Um, but then at the same time, watching colleagues of mine, friends of mine navigate this and trying to come out with their truth, but at the same time being told that they're lying and, and yeah. knowing that I had, knowing that some experiences I had, if I talked about them, I would be told that I was lying. And, yeah. and what I think it comes down to is this slow realization that. Oh, you are a snotmonger. It's this slow realization that we've given away. Well, not given away. It's been we've we've watched people take away our our rights to our own bodies and gone. Oh no, I I must be in the wrong. Um, oh no, I I guess that's the payoff. And I, even when I was training as an actor, I, I was sort of told, like, well, if you want to be an actor, you've got to get your breasts out. So I did. Yeah, wow. You know? It, mm. It's just, you're just told that's that's the cost for this type of thing. This is just how it works. Mm. And um, to suddenly have a few pivotal voices say, this is not how it should work, wow. has changed so much. Um, but I think what we're seeing is the unfortunate reverberations of many many years of oppression yeah. and we, all we can do is ride out the fever you know and yeah. go okay we're gonna we're gonna have to deal with the consequences of this and i i'm of the belief that we're all sort of privy to it like yeah i feel like some people harassed me yeah i feel like some people assaulted me but and i don't blame myself for that mm. but i've seen other people get harassed and assaulted and mm. i did nothing mm. because i just went well that's how this works right mm. And I feel like I'm, I would be, and I know I've been in situations where I've pushed the boundaries with people and gone, that's because that's what we do. That's how it works. And I know they've been uncomfortable and I've done it anyway. And it's not just men, you know, and it's sort of sitting in that and going, how do we atone for that? How do I get forgiveness from that? How do I forgive myself? How do I apologize? How do I live with myself? Yeah. Or is the question, okay, how do, what future do we create? And how can I help it be different and change? Yeah. Yeah. 
and I'm just really excited about that now because I don't think it could ever be the same. I think we're, we've now reached, a, reached that point of transformation. Mm. Which is wonderful. Yeah. And, I'm, and I've like seen you over the last year or whatever of, of this stuff. I want to say publicly on this podcast how proud mm. I am of you for you. walking into this and having had those experiences mm. and being willing to name... <laughs> Uh, to name what happened and to confront and not back down and and not just for your own sake but for women's sake for young mm. actors for um incredible young actors who are coming up who who are, who if this hadn't happened and if these voices like yours hasn't spoken to this they would be forced into similar situations and that's the thing like it's all well and good when it's you and this is it comes back to the hating of our own bodies right yeah so much of that stuff of going, well, I don't really value myself that much. But when I think about what it could do to that person, that mm. young 16-year-old that's entering the industry or mm. whatnot, it hits even harder. Mm. And it, and I think it got to a point for me where, like, I'm 30, I'm relatively young, mm. but I've had those early 20s prime, hey, hey, here mm. I am on a catwalk, like, not catwalk, on a red carpet, yeah. years, right? Yeah, yeah. And I just was like, they don't, I have less to lose. So I need to be the one to, to start talking, you know? Mm-hmm. And whatever consequences it has, I'm of the belief now that all things get redeemed in the end. And if it costs me now, I, I don't think it, I don't really care for one, but I don't think it does cost me. I think we've got everything to gain wow. from that honesty. Mm. I'm just going to get the snot off my child. No, that's okay. Oh, oh Bubby. I know it's annoying, but you were really, like, you really were going snot, for it. Snot fest. Yeah. Snot fest, mercy. Bah, 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 bah. Well, it's been so good to chat. <laughs> it's Where, been lovely. And so, Mercy, you have been amazing. Do you want to say anything more to the microphone? Do you have any words to say, Do you want to say, say anything more to the microphone, Mercy? Bah. Oh, she's bah, bah, grabbing bah. it. She's grabbing it. <laughs> what do you think? Now you've got stage fright. Yeah, no words now. No words now. So um, the your book and your writing, your blog and all this stuff, where can people um, where can people find there she sure. goes. Now um, she wants to express. Yes. Where can people find you if they want to get more hear more well, from you? My book is called Metanoia. Um, it is a great coming out word. late 2019. Yes. Um my blog is called A Forbidden Room, and it's really a forbiddenroom.com. Um, and I, I do a lot of my writing there, and um, I do a lot of sort of sharing of different thoughts and stuff on Instagram as well. And okay. sort of that's the blog is almost based a bit out of that. Um, as Anna McGann or Anna Weir, Anna McGann on Instagram yeah. and website. Um, I sort of do, but it's in <laughs> construction. Let's be real. My website's a forbidden room. It's the it's okay, the cool. blog. Um, yeah, okay. So you'll get most info there. But I would be honoured if you journeyed with me. Honoured. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for chatting, and again, thank you, little Mercy, for all that you are sharing. Is wonderful. <laughs> thank you. Thanks, Joel. Mm. I love interviewing these uh, inspiring people that we get to on the Deep Place podcast. Please do check out Anna's 
work. You can see the details on the show notes. Um, please also uh, continue to share this podcast. We've had such a huge response to it and we would love for it to keep on getting out there to people. Uh, join us on our Instagram, on our Facebook, the Deep Place Podcast community um, to, to ask questions, to chat, to share some of your own story with us and with people. We'd love to hear them. Um, we'd also love it uh, if you would have a think about um, coming alongside to support this podcast financially, um, we've got a Patreon site set up for that to happen. We have, uh, at the moment, we have about four people um, who have graciously decided that they want to um, put their wallet uh, into this that we are bringing out into the world. If, if you're kind of hearing these words that we're sharing uh, and would love to see it continue and for us to be able to, to do this, this podcast, um, then please do go to patreon.com backslash the deep place podcast and uh, support us in that would be amazing um, but most importantly keep sharing this with your friends keep working through your own story and your own creativity we're loving bringing this to the world and we hope that you are enjoying listening to it um, this has been another episode of the deep place podcast thank you so much for joining us